If you would, take out the Word of God and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Next week we will begin a series through the book of Acts as a church together. Um, But we're going to end this year looking at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. And I'm going to read the whole chapter for us to give us a context of what's going on here uh, before we begin our time together in God's Word. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect Word, Ephesians chapter 5. Hear the Word of Christ to us as a church today. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love As Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and impure covetousness must not be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret." But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, But understand what is the will of the Lord. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And he himself is its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might... Present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Oh God, as we read this chapter, this profound instruction that has been given to us by your Spirit, God, I pray as we we consider what it means to live as a church in the world, those who are to reflect the light of the gospel in our homes, in our marriages, in the way that we talk to one another, in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we think about the culture around us. God, as we think about all these things today as a church, as we, as we transition to a new year, God, I pray that we would be wise. I pray that we would be precise. I pray that we would be those who are committed to not wasting our life, not, not wasting our time, but we would be those who are redemptive in our homes, in our culture, in our church. We would treasure the gospel more than anything else. It would be on our lips. Folks around us would experience it in our actions, in the way that we serve them, in the way that we forgive them, in the way that we are merciful. God, I pray that we would be laden with the gospel. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. May we seat it. One of the greatest things about having my sons play uh, baseball, which... You can already tell I'm thinking about baseball. The year turns and I can't wait. It's cold. The colder it gets, the more I long for baseball in spring. But one of the greatest things about having my sons play baseball is baseball players, whether you know this or not, they have to work on their field of play themselves. Now, it may not happen at at younger ages, but if your kids play baseball, the older they get, eventually the teams that they play on will have to do field work. They'll have to do field maintenance work. They are responsible uh, for the field of play on which they play. Basketball players, they don't have to work on the court. They show up with a ball, and they bounce it, and they shoot it, and they play on the court uh, without any concern of what it looks like or what they have to do to get it ready. Uh, Soccer players, football players, I I don't think they have to do much of anything anyway uh, but show up and play. Uh, but, but they don't have to think about the field on which they're playing. Swimmers don't have to worry about the chemicals in the pool. They just jump in and they just swim. Baseball players have to think about the field on which they play constantly. And a lot of baseball players w- would probably attest to this. Sometimes you work on the field more than you play on the field, more than you get onto the field. Baseball fields, are uh, they constantly have to be conditioned. Bases have to be pulled before and after practice and leveled off so there's not buildup around the bases. Mounds have to be wetted and tamped and covered. Uh, The plate has to be filled back in after every game, after every practice. Uh, The field has to be rake and drug. and, And a good coach knows he can't do that alone, so he always incorporates the team to make sure that it gets done. 
And, and I love that process, by the way. I go to baseball games just to watch the field crew. Sometimes I don't even know the score of the game because I can't wait between innings, if you've been to a Major League Baseball game, for the field crew to come out and work. I am fascinated by that. Uh, but one of my, old, my oldest son, who's playing high school baseball, he's experiencing this firsthand, that working on the field, is a, it's a year-long process before and after every game. And the first game that I went to this year to, to watch my son play, uh, I was coaching another team, so I wasn't able to be there very much. And so I got to go to one home game. And the, the team was out there getting the field ready for the game. Uh, and one of the things they have to do is they have to line the field before the game. And it came time to line the field, and I heard the team yelling for my son to come and line the field, which seemed very odd to me. They, they were yelling for Titus, and I was thinking, he's the one that is about to put this foul line down on the field on which they are about to play. And it was the strangest thing in the world that they would be calling for this player to come do this. And, and, and I thought, this is going to be horrible. And then I sat and watched him and actually Ethan Woods put the foul line down in it. And, and, and I sat and watched in fascination that, that this was the, the, the player that was putting this straight foul line down almost to perfection. And he was, he was getting down to make sure that it was just right. And every little uh, roll of the machine, the chalk line, he was making sure it was just... doesn't surprise me from Ethan. Ethan's well put together. And, <laughs> but my son that was doing it, he's not lazy. He's just... That's just was way outside of his box to be precise, to, 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 to do that. And I thought to myself, why can't he be that way with his room? <laughs> and why can't, why does the basket that's two foot away that dirty clothes goes in and it, they're on the floor, like, be more precise with that action. And uh, I thought this that's the way most of us are. When we want to be precise with things, when we want to be disciplined with things, we can. There are certain things in our life that we enjoy, that we want to do, and that we can be disciplined with those things. And then there's other areas of our lives that we really don't care that much about, that we don't find much precision in doing. I, I'm that way. I can, I can be disciplined. I like to run. I can be disciplined to run as many miles as, as I want in a day, but I'm not that disciplined when it comes to eating. I like to eat. I, I can be disciplined when it comes to preparing a sermon. I love preparing sermons. I, I will work hard at it. It will consume me. But if somebody just wants me to fill out, you know, half a sheet of paper of some application or reference for them, it'll take me months to even get around to that. And, and, and that's the way we all function to some extent. There are things that we, we will focus on and we will be precise with. Some of us this week, we were at work 15 minutes early. When it was time to get to work, we were on it. And yet this morning, we 
We were here 15 minutes late, and we, were, we, were, we do that with our life. There are things that we will focus on that we will be precise with, and then there are other things in our life that, ah, but that's the way we all function to some extent. And some of us today are here thinking about our New Year's resolution, and it's revealing to you your lack of precision that you're not a very precise person. You're probably not making New Year's resolutions about things that you have it together. You're probably not making New Year's resolutions about things that you really enjoy. No, it's probably like diet. It's probably finances. It's probably things this year that you haven't been very precise with. And it reveals something in our lives it reveals that we are not all in all the time. We are not always precise. We, we, we fall short of the precision that God demands in every area of life. We don't have it all together all the time. Some of us have it together over here. Some of us have it together over here. But none of us have it all together all of the time. Paul writes... The book of Ephesians, the letter of Ephesians, is to a, it's to a struggling church in some sense. There's a lot of conflict that's going on in this church in Ephesus. There are Jewish believers who are looking across the aisle at Gentile converts, and they're asking, what are y'all doing here? How, how do you think you can be a part of the Messiah's kingdom? You're Gentiles. You, you eat meat. You're disgusting. You've never been circumcised. And the Gentiles are going, who do you think you are? Mr. Holier than thou. Looking down your nose at us. And many of the Gentiles are doubting their salvation. They're beginning to believe what the Jews are saying about them. Maybe we aren't a part of the people of God. Maybe you don't get in just through faith in Christ. Maybe we do need to be circumcised. Maybe we do need to begin to dress like them. And Paul writes this letter to say, No, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because of Christ. In Christ. Christ is all you need. And he writes to this church to say, around Christ and around the gospel is where you find your unity as this body who we get to the end of the book of Ephesians becomes this great warrior who is waging war with all of the promises of God in the world in light of the resurrection, living out the gospel together in the world. And he says, as you think about your life as a Christian in the world, be precise. Be honed in. Christianity is not just one thing over here that you do once a week and maybe you really have it together. No, it's your whole life. And you have to be precise with your whole life, not just in one area. Notice verse 15 of chapter 5. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but wise. The, the word walk here, it refers to your way of life, your habits, what you do throughout your life, what you are continually found doing. And notice he says, be careful how you walk. 
He's saying here, be careful how you live, how you live your whole life. One translation says, walk circumspectly. What does that mean? And it means to walk with precision, that you are thinking about every step, the line that you are laying down for Jesus. In some sense, the Christian is walking on a razor. He is conscious of every decision he is making in light of the glory of Christ. What will this mean for the gospel? What will this mean for the kingdom? Will this display the glory of God in my life? Am I online with that purpose at all times in every area of life? And it's not just some generic living straight edge, but one who is learning how to walk with Christ. The Christian, every decision, every step is thinking, does this honor Christ? Is this according to His will in His Word? What, let me examine this area of my life. And, and is the authority of Christ weighing down here? And that's why he says, not as unwise, but wise. Wisdom is an extremely crucial concept in the Bible. And, and wisdom is not just knowing things. Like you have a lot of knowledge and information. It, wisdom is the skill Skill by the power of the Holy Spirit in applying what you know to life. Wisdom is a skill of being able to hear the Word of God and being able to do it. And the Bible says this skill is developed, Proverbs 1-7, by fearing the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. You live your life knowing someone else created you. And He holds your life in His hands. And He gives you everything you have. So when He speaks, you listen. You have no choice but to listen. This is God Almighty who has revealed Himself in His Word and His will to me. Why would I not listen to my Creator? And that is the beginning of wisdom because you know who is speaking to you and then you develop the skill of doing it. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. But he says here, we are to live this way in light of this fear, wise, not unwise. He, he contrasted here with the unbeliever, describing the unbeliever here as unwise. The, the unbeliever has no fear of God before them. No, their greatest fear is not getting what they want. Their greatest fear is not doing what they want. So they're not going to listen to anybody else It's going to do and say whatever they want. And here in this wisdom, contrast it with the precise life of the Christian. The unbeliever, he's like a drunk. He he doesn't even know what his next step is going to be. He's controlled by his own desires. And, And so his desire calls him this way one step, and then this way the next step. And he is driven by his desire. He can't even control himself because he is driven by lack of fear, no fear, his own desires. One resolution that I think you should have this year is to read the book of Proverbs. Read a proverb a day. It's 31. Read read one a day every month and then start over. It is a beautiful book 
of the skill of applying the fear of of the Lord in every area. And it covers every area. Proverbs doesn't say, here's what you need to do. Be really good in one area of life and fear the Lord on Sunday morning by hearing His Word and singing the songs. No, Proverbs is, the wisdom of the Lord is screaming out everywhere you go. When you are buying something at Walmart, the fear of the Lord is there. When you are speaking to your wife, the fear of the Lord is there. When you are making friends, the fear of the Lord is there. Are you allowing the fear of the Lord to control your desires? And this is what it means to be precise. One of the things I want to encourage you with today is in 2018, let's be precise with our lives. Let's don't be careless. Let's hone in. Even our our work tomorrow morning or, or whenever you go back to work this week, you are an employee or an employer who should live under the fear of the Lord. You will answer to God concerning your work. You will answer to God by the way that you manage people, by the way that you manage money. And the question is, are you causing others to fear you? Or are you causing them to fear the Lord? Do do people look in your life and they see a weightiness to the way in which you carry out your responsibilities? Are you precise with your life, your roles in your home as mom, dad, son, daughter? Do, do Do you want your house to be full of this joyful fear of the Lord where we we walk around and decisions we make as a family do we just argue about them do we do we just go back and forth about them what are we going to do this year where are we going to go how's this going to be organized do we ever sit down and go no this is about the fear of the Lord what would God say about this how we're going to use our money how we're going to use our time as you develop relationships Ask the question, are the relationships, friendships you know, are they causing you to live under the fear of the Lord or are they propping up a carelessness in your life? Do they promote you just doing what you want whenever you want or do they remind you you are to be harnessed by the authority of another as you plan your your day? Does the fear of the Lord factor in? Is there a wisdom as you sit down and you think about your day? Or is it, can I just get by today with doing the least I have to do? Is your day about you and it's so minimalistic that if you can just survive to the end of the day and pull the car in the garage and shut the door and get inside... Or do you live under the fear of the Lord and say, no, this is about the glory of God. I'm going to plan my day in light of others who I might serve. I'm going to plan my day to honor God by by being before Him in His Word and, and being enamored with His glory so that my whole life would be surrendered to the fear of the Lord. Be precise in that way. Also, Paul says, what this looks like and what this does in the life of the Christian It's redemptive. Notice verse 16, he says, making the best use of the time. Literally, what he's trying to communicate here is purchasing back time, making the best use, making sure that all of your time is useful, being being precise with your time, making sure it's full of meaning. Your schedule's not empty. Your life is not empty. 
It's not without purpose. It's not without meaning. No, the Christian looks at his life and says, I don't want to waste it. I don't want to waste this minute, this hour, this day, this month, this year. I don't want to waste it. I want to redeem this time. I want it to be full of purpose. I want to be precise in that way. And he alludes to the fact that we live in a world here that is full of evil and wickedness. From from Genesis 3 on, the world is under the rule of Satan. Adam decides that he's going to disobey God and join forces with Satan. And from Genesis 3 on, we see the world is held sway by the rule of Satan. And at the heart of Satan's rule is death. Sin enters the world, and the Bible tells us death through sin. The consequence for us disobeying God is that we are separated from God. We are, even as Adam in the garden, is cast out from the presence of God. And from Genesis 3 on, the world, human history, everything is intentionally and unintentionally moving away from God. And then we have the rule of Christ that comes on the scene. And on the cross, the consequence for our sin is paid for. So no longer do we have to move away from God. And on the cross, the, the consequence for sin, which is death, that we would be separated from God, that we would die and eternally be separated from God, that consequence is paid for in Christ. And so no longer do we have to move away from God. No, we are allowed access to God through faith in Christ. By submitting to the rule of Christ, we are allowed to be back under the rule of God, to move back toward God. And this move back, this restoration, this redemption happens when we believe the gospel. God gives us His Spirit and we are no longer held sway by the rule of Satan, by the rule of sin, by the rule of death. No, we are in submission to the rule of Christ and we have His Spirit living within us, teaching us what it means to live under His rule. And what Paul says here is your life at all times, is to mark this new rule. You are to be a signal in the world. You are to be a flag. You are to announce to the world around you that human history is no longer moving away from God, but through Christ, we're moving back to God in Christ. That's what your life is to represent. We were moving away from the garden And God has come to us in Christ, in the gospel, in the spirit, and he is bringing us back to the garden. And your life is to symbolize a march back to the garden, to be with Christ, to be with God forever. Our life is to be a flag, a sign to the world around us that a redemption has occurred. He says here, that's the best use of your time. That's what it looks like to redeem your time. And so a question for you is, are you living like redemption is real? Are you living as a sign, a signal, a flag, an announcement that redemption is true? One of the things in this new year that some of you need to do is live like you really believe the gospel. Let's just make it that simple. Living in fear, guilt-stricken, 
Condemnation is not declaring to the world redemption is real. But living as someone who has been forgiven because of the cross, living as someone who is marching back to the presence of God in His kingdom, back to the garden kingdom with God, living that way means you delight in mercy. You delight in forgiveness. Some of you need to live that way. You need to be precise in saying, yes, the gospel is true. I love forgiveness. I love grace. I love mercy. God's okay with that. He he allowed His Son to be crucified so you would delight in mercy and forgiveness. And some of you need to just embrace it. Some some of you hear resolution, precision. You You hear this sort of begrudging. Let's get disciplined. And what some of you need to do is just go, whoo, I, I just need to believe the gospel this year. I just need to live as someone who is accepted in forgiveness. And he says that would be the best use of your time, living out redemption in this way. But, but we also make the best use of our time. We redeem the time. One of the ways that we signal this, one of the ways we announce it is by literally announcing it. We are those who are marching away from the garden, away from the presence of God. God has come to us. He's announced we can be restored. He's restoring us. And we signal to the world, this is true. You can be forgiven and accepted by God. We signal, we announce the gospel, the good news that forgiveness has come in Christ. We do it with our mouths. We say it. But it also includes not just verbal declaration of the gospel, it also includes just the way we talk in general. Paul's big on this in Ephesians. As you, and that's one reason I wanted to read the whole chapter. is because this talking about redemption and speaking redemption, it, it's not just sitting down with folks and you're a sinner, you need to believe the gospel, be saved, walk the aisle, come to church with me. We got to do all that. But Paul makes it even more difficult when he talks about talking about redemption. It's all of life in the way that you talk. He says this, Let no corrupt word come from your mouth. What he says is no words that would turn back redemption, that would push people away from God, that would push people away from Christ, but only what is profitable, what is only redeeming. And so Paul gives us a choice with our words. He says, you want to make the best use of your time, be precise with your words, and that means being careful with your words. And the question you ask with all of your words is, is this redeeming? That's why he's so severe about gossip in the context of the church. Because he says, when you gossip, when you cause division, you're just like Satan saying, join forces with me, join forces with me. And you're pulling people away from Christ to yourself and you're dividing the church. And he says, ask the question as you talk in the church, as you talk in the world, are you redeeming with your words? Are you making the best use of their time by the way that you talk? Jesus would say, From our mouths is the overflow of our heart. And if we have been saved by the gospel, we're going to talk gospel, but we're going to talk like we believe the gospel. And and we live in a world, we live in a culture where we just vent for sport. 
It's a humorous thing to whine and complain. It, it, it makes us feel good. It does something good within us. I mean, and I know things are ironic and humorous and, and we can be funny about certain things. But if you notice on social media, some of the things that we like the most are just people venting. America's horrible. And we love it. This is so funny. Or, or moms just, it's so hard being a mom. I ain't doing that. And that's funny. But Paul says, hold on. And I get it. Some of it's ironic and it's humorous and all that. But Paul says, is it redemptive? That's the question the Christian asks. Are you precisely evaluating your words to say, is this pushing people toward Jesus or pulling them away from Jesus? What are your words doing? What, what are they doing for others? Are they redemptive? Or do they reflect the same lisping voice that spoke to Eve in the garden that said, no, it's better to move away from God. It's better to do your own thing. It's better to just, I'll do what I want, say what I want, and y'all just get over it. That's not, that may feel good, but what's it doing to others who see it? Are you making the best use of your time with your words? When you speak about your kids, are you pointing them to Jesus and others to Jesus? Are you just harping on them? It makes us feel good with our words to, oh, you idiot, why did you do that? Makes me feel good to say that. But that can't be the end of the story. We're all idiots. You're an idiot. I'm an idiot. And we need Jesus. When you talk to others about your kids, are, 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 you, are you pulling them toward Jesus and toward the blessing that kids represent in reminding us of the gospel? When you talk about your husband, husband and wife, you have a responsibility to uphold the gospel as you speak to one another in front of your kids and as you talk to one another in the world about each other. We, we like to say, oh, that old ball and chain. And I get it, I get it. It's, sometimes it's funny and ironic. But Jesus didn't die for a ball and chain. He died for His bride as a church. And He doesn't sit around and whine and complain about the dishes and the laundry and rah, rah, rah. No, He serves her. And He lays down His life for her to display love. And so are you reflecting love, acceptance, redemption, the gospel as you speak when you talk about others at church? When, when you talk about others at church, are you just nagging, nitpicky? Or are you looking in people's lives going, thank you for doing that. I know your week's hard. And you show up here week after week and serve. I'm so thankful for you. Or when you see what people do in the life of the church, are you just pointing out what they don't do? Yeah, they're here on Sunday morning, but you can't get them here any other time. That's not redemptive. That's not helpful. 
Are your words to and about other people in the life of the church, are they redemptive? Are the words that come from your life, do, do they on social media, on whatever that you're interacting with, on emails, on text messages at work, are the words that come from your life, are they precise as someone who is headed to heaven, not hell? Do, do people, can people tell by the way that you talk, you're announcing the gospel and you're speaking like someone who believes the gospel. They, they see a difference in the way that you talk. You're not always just chiming in negativity. If you can't say amen, say, say ouch. Notice the text continues. Because the days are evil. This is where we live. And this is why he says here we have to be careful with our lives and the way that we talk. We have to be careful. Why? The days are evil. Days here, it usually refers to days after the cross. And he says they are evil. Since Adam in the garden, Genesis 3, everything is moving away from God. That, that everything is rejecting the rule of God. It is counter God. It is rejecting the new life that's in Christ. Everything naturally is moving away from God. We live in evil days. And so you be careful with the words you speak. Are you propping up evil? Are you pushing people further away? Be careful, be precise the way that you live. He says here, while God is redeeming through the cross, there's still a residue of sin in the world. And as a sinner, your tendency will be to drift with the days. The tendency of your heart will be to move toward evil. The tendency of other people will be to move toward evil. So you be careful and you be redemptive. I'm going to be precise. No. We're going to move toward God with this conversation. We're going to move toward God with this action. We're going to move toward God in this way. You are to be redemptive because the days are evil. In Ephesians chapter 1, he says, In light of the resurrection, all things are being summed up under the rule of Christ. And human history will be summed up under the rule of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, Everything has been created to display the authority of Jesus Christ, who is the image, who is the expression of God, who is God's King. God created everything to display His rule and His supremacy, and everything is moving in that way. Even though we look around and we see things are outside the rule of Christ, Christ will rule over all things. And God has created you, and He has now redeemed you to declare that purpose. And Paul would say here, Anything else that you give your life over to, other than the rule of Christ, this is what it comes down to. Any objective, any goal, any resolution that you give yourself over to that is not about the rule and supremacy of Christ is wasted. It's just wasting away with the evil days. And how many of our goals and how many of our purposes are, are, are just wasted away with what everybody else is doing? We want to be better at everything everybody else is doing. We want to have a name for what everybody else is doing. And we order our lives around priorities and goals that, 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 are just, that are just out there. Some of them are just neutral. But he says the tendency is to order your life outside of the rule and reign of Christ when all of human history will be summed up in Jesus. Think about this. If history... and and your life, whether you like it or not, one day 
you will bow your knee before Jesus and confess He is Lord, you can do it now or you can do it when He judges you. And He will rule and reign over every molecule. They will be put back in order. Sin will be vanquished. Sin will be punished. The evil one will be destroyed. The rule and reign of Christ is coming. God created you to reflect His rule. Now He has redeemed you to reflect His rule. Anything, get this, anything you give your life over to other than the supremacy of Christ, it's not just wicked, it's wasteful. You're wasting time. Several generations ago, the goal was what we would describe the American dream. When people thought, what do, I, what do I want to give my life to? Subconsciously, intentionally, unintentionally, it was the American dream. I want to go to college, get a good job, have a great career, get married, have two kids, just two, have a nice house with a nice picket fence, live there with my two kids, make sure they have it better than I ever had it, do whatever I can to make sure they are taken care of and their life is easier than mine, retire, spend some time with the grandkids, go to the beach, collect shells, and die. That was the American dream. That, that, that was what we gave our life to. Some of us even tacked Bible verses to it, said it was biblical. And what came from that, our children who lived in homes where parents said, I just want you to have it better than me. And they gave them very little responsibility. And they just got and got and got. And they don't know how to have a job now. And they don't know what to pass on to their kids. So what they tell their kids is, I don't have a lot of money to give you, but you're special. You deserve a trophy for being special all the time. You're special, you're special, you're special. You deserve it, you deserve it, you deserve it. And now they live in the world thinking they deserve everything. I don't have to work hard for good grades. Just let me try that test again. I deserve a better grade. I deserve it, I deserve it. And they think they're entitled to do less and get more. And while the goal at one time was the American dream, now the goal, the dream is apathy. Just, if I can order my life and the rest of my life and not having to work hard and having a lot of stuff, that's what I want. That, that's the way we have a generation that, I tell my kids this all the time. If you would just look people in the eyes, shake their hands, and talk like a man, you will run a company one day. Because nobody else has any ambition to be any better than that. They don't. Their goal is to do nothing and have more. And this is who we are made up here, including myself. This is the way my, my mom said that to me over and over. I just want you to have more than I did. I just want you to have more than I did. And, and we all are here on different levels of all of those goals and all of those dreams, and it's affected us and the consequences. And, and we think about, what do I want for my life? Well, God brings us all together from all of those influences and says, I'm going to give you something to have some ambition about. I'm going to give you something that's better than the American dream. 
I'm going to give you dreams and goals and a passion that, that, that eternity will be swept into. And it is the authority and rule and supremacy of my son. Give yourself over to that as a dream. And that's what we do as a church. We come together and we all have different dreams and passions and we harness them with the glory of Christ. See, some of us think this about church life. We think our goal is to be secure, to one day have a building, one day have a lot of people, one day to have a lot of money and savings. There's a group of people here that think that. That may not be our goal as a church because our starting point is the glory of Christ and the supremacy of Christ. And it may mean meeting in a warehouse for 50 years. It may mean not having a lot of people because we keep sending them out. We keep sending them out. But our vision, our, our dream, we do dream and we are ambitious and we ain't going to be lazy. We're not going to be lazy. It, it, those of us here that are influenced by just doing less and having more, the Christian isn't apathetic about life. You're not. You're ready to get after it. You're ready to get a job. You're ready, you're, you're ready to make money and have resources. Why? The glory of Christ. And we bring all of that together and we say it's not the American dream. It's not being apathetic. We are honed in on redeeming the time for Christ's glory. And it may mean we're inconvenienced. It may mean that we're seen as weirdos, but we're going to be harnessed by the supremacy of Christ in all things. And we're always going to ask with every step, what would Jesus think about this? And it may be mean inconvenienced. There's a family in our, in our church just this last week who I thought they were weird when they did this. They, they invited international students over to their house for Christmas morning. And I saw that, and I'll tell you this, to confess this, I said, I would never do that. Because here's the way I was raised. Christmas morning is this sacred time with your kids. And ain't nobody going to come to my... I don't even invite my mom to my house on Christmas morning. And that is a true story. We, we stay here as a family and we huddle in our house on Christmas morning and it's the Haskins hoopla. And yet they invited international students over right in the middle of that. And I thought it was crazy and weird. But when I, I talked to them about it, they said, what would Jesus think about this? I said, oh... Convicting. We actually sat down with our girls and told them how great that was. And, and that's just one example of what it looks like to be driven by the supremacy of Christ and not the supremacy of Jeremy. And we give ourselves over not to be happy and easy and everything's better and everything's neat and tidy all the time. Sometimes legacy means we don't have much of a legacy or security here and now, but we have eternal joy. Paul puts it this way in Philippians, and this is the way I wanted you to think throughout the year about your life. What does it mean to live precise to the glory of God? Glory means weight. It means authority. 
In 1 Corinthians, he says, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And sometimes I, I thought about how does that work? I used to, when I would teach uh, students and youth ministry, I would say, you need to be able to brush your teeth to the glory of God. And I had no idea what that meant. I had no idea how you would do that. Julie's laughing. She's heard me say it a million times. But I, I didn't know what that meant. But glory means weight. It means authority. And in Philippians, Paul says, you should live a life worthy of the gospel. And what he does is he puts before us scales. And we talked about this in Malachi, where I have the glory of God over here, and the glory of God outweighs everything. And what I'm doing with the scale over here is I'm putting everything in it to equate the glory of God. And so when I play sports, am I doing it in a way that displays the fear of the Lord, the glory of God? Does it reflect the gospel? And I'm trying to do it in a way that equates the glory of God, that lifts Christ up, that lifts the name of God up. And I want to be precise in putting it all in. Because only when I say it's all in, does that equate the glory of God. You don't equate the glory of God. You don't fill the scale up by saying my Christianity is one day a week. You don't. Don't be comfortable with that this year. Say it's all in. I'm dumping it all in to display the glory of God, the rule of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. It all goes in. God created you. He's given you gifts. He's given you ability. He's given you a family. Everything that you experience is to be put in the scales for His glory, to lift the glory of God up. And, and, and only do you in, in, in the smallest of way begin to reflect the weight and value of God when you dump it all in. Only then does it even begin to reflect the glory of God. That's what, that's what I want us to be about as a church this year. It's all in. Not just Sunday morning. Not just the events that we have this year. Not, not just VBS. Not just the mission trips. Not just the BFG time. Not just the women's ministry times. Not just what we do as men's ministry the youth ministry, the children's ministry, not just the segmented parts of our life. But what I want to encourage you to do today is to be precise under the fear of the Lord to redeem the time, put it all in for the glory of God. Do you want to get to the end of your life and stand before God and say, yeah, I was at church every Sunday, but Monday through Saturday didn't mean very much for your glory. And you get to the end and you look at the scales and so much of your life is on the outside of the scale. And you know what God would say? It's a waste. You wasted it. You wasted so much of what I gave you for my glory. And even then, when we put it all in, we would say it's not enough. Right? That's why the gospel is real and true. Because everything that's in and outside of the scales is covered in blood. And that's why at the end we say we want it to be all in because it's all His anyway. He purchased it with His blood. He sent His Son to die for you so that you would live for Him. And the question is, in this year, will we be all in?